So I think if you ask the question, who sets the rules for the digital economy, currently it's the companies themselves. Companies are an actor in governance and in regulation that should not be overlooked. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast conversation for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute. And today we're going to talk about, is digital trade one of the winners of the COVID-19 pandemic? Or phrased differently, what future lies ahead for the digital economy? The pandemic is accelerating the rise of the digital economy. News this week that big tech stocks are worth more than Europe's stocks 600 index illustrate that while the regular economy is taking a beating, the tech sector seems to be riding high. Now, how is the digital economy developing in the context of the pandemic? And what we hope to do right now is to look at some of the questions this raises for global trade policy, security, and governmental regulation. And I'm joined by two fantastic speakers on the topic. On the one hand, I have with me Marietje Schaken. Marietje is president of the Cyber Peace Institute, international policy director at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford University, and she's a former member of the European Parliament. Secondly, I'm joined by Alan Beatty. Alan is senior trade writer for the daily newsletter Trade Secrets for the Financial Times, and he's an associate fellow at Chatham House. Now, Marietje and Alan, at the risk of sounding cliché, an increasing part of our lives and our work is now spent online. Everyone is ordering parcels. According to the OECD, by May 2020, online orders were up 50% in Europe and 120% in North America. Digital trade is taking some of the sharp edges off of this tremendous economic downturn, and it's allowing businesses to continue operations. We're all on Zoom meetings, all the time, everyone is ordering online, we're consuming entertainment online, e-commerce, teleworking, it's all part and partial of today's reality. Alan, has the global economy irreversibly changed as a consequence of this? You know something, I have a slightly counterintuitive view on this, which is um, I'm not entirely convinced that it has. You know, we've seen obviously a big shift in globalization, a big collapse in goods trade. But the obituary for trade and, and particularly goods trade has been written many times over the last 20 years, right? It was going to be September 11th that did it by putting sand in the wheels of globalization. It was going to be the currency wars. It was going to be the global financial crisis. And although goods trade has slowed, it certainly hasn't collapsed. It's interesting, just as an aside, that you mentioned online orders there. It's certainly true that we're watching a lot more entertainment online because we're not going out to the movies. We're buying more stuff online because we're not going out to the shops. But really, that's a substitution of one kind of service for another. Right? We're substituting online for the cinema experience or for retail. One of the really interesting things about the pandemic is that although goods trade has absolutely collapsed, however, 
if you look at it, it appears to be mainly towards to do with the demand side that just, you know, people just don't have as much money. People are reacting to the fact that they're furloughed or they've lost their jobs or what have you. What was predicted early on in the pandemic was this big shock in supply chains. There were going to be shortages on the shelves and so forth. Now, apart from a couple of, frankly, demand shifts, you know, there were some shortages of toilet paper, there were shortages of flour because people were baking at home and so on. There haven't actually been major dislocations in goods trade. You know, I don't know about you, but the steady stream of Amazon parcels um, arriving at our house, as somebody once said, I think we're now one of China's top 10 trading partners, suggest that actually that part of the global economy is functioning reasonably well. And looking forward, I know there's a big deal about a lot of people looking at amending supply chains, but a lot of the people I've spoken to, particularly in the more sophisticated industries like cars and so on, um, say it's going to be very difficult to diversify or shift considerably their supply chains from China and other low-cost countries. But you identified one of the big changes so far, which is people have to work from home a lot more and and work online, at least in the the, um, advanced countries. Now, you know, it remains to be seen, of course, how much of that would last the end of lockdown. And it's kind of unfortunate, the sort of evangelists for working from home, of whom there are quite a few people in the US have done these studies, which suggest that something like a third or more of jobs in America could be done from home, say, well, it's a bit unfortunate, isn't it, that that this experiment is a forced experiment, right? It's people having to work from home because of a pandemic, they're not choosing to do so. And it has all the awkwardnesses of having to look after children because the schools are shut and so forth. So people may not have as good an experience of working from home as they hoped. That said, you know, if it is one of these situations you get in economics where there's a sort of critical mass, once you've shifted a lot of people from one equilibrium to another, then they stay there. You know, a lot of people didn't work from home because the boss wasn't working from home. So there's a presenteeism aspect. Once the boss is working from home and working online, then everyone else can as well. So I don't think that all the working from home by any means that's being done now will survive the end of the easing of lockdown. But I suspect a substantial amount of it will. You'll see a substantial change. Not least, of course, because if people have any sense, they'll realise this is unlikely to be the last pandemic. You know, we're going to have to be resilient in the future. But that's the interesting thing. If anything, it's the labour market that's going to adjust more than, than, than products and service markets. So when people talk about digital trade to get onto the subject, I think that may have been exacerbated by the pandemic. But really, there were a lot of trends already in trade, which may have been accelerated possibly artificially by the pandemic. But it remains to be seen very much how much of that survives. So globalization hasn't ended. Have we started to see it in a different light, you think, Marietje? Well, I just wanted to build on uh, what Alan said in terms of how trade has changed over the years from being mostly about goods changing hands and coming from all parts of the world to reach customers elsewhere to being increasingly about services and then those services being digitized. And so I think the question is really, what kind of flows do we see going around the world and where does value get created and added and who benefits? And in a way, you could say that in the digital realm, globalization is still largely alive and kicking. You have companies reaching customers all over the world and you can see data flows relatively unhindered going around the globe as well. Now, obviously, there are some recent examples of the Trump administration seeking to ban TikTok, uh, more protectionist digital trade war tendencies slipping in. And I think the big question is where those will go. But by and large, I would say, like Alan said, the digitization of services and the whole 
modernization of trade flows has already started a long time ago, well before this pandemic. And so we cannot quite conclude yet what the decisive impact of the pandemic has been. I would note that there's also a lot of people who will be confronted with the economic impact of the pandemic, so job losses and things like that, and may actually turn to supporting local stores, uh, local services, local companies more because it's closer to their community and because they're more aware of the pain that's being felt there as a result of the pandemic. So the, the response by people, even if they have the option to access services all over the world, they may actually feel inclined to support their neighbor more than someone on the other end of the earth. Which does seem a bit counterintuitive because we've all become very connected. We are now having this conversation as well spread out across different geographies. But what you're saying is there's going to be a counter movement that people actually want to reach out to those closest to them to support them because of the dislocation that the pandemic has caused. Well, I think that's definitely possible. But uh, the, the other thing I would add is the fact that we're connected now doesn't mean that we're engaged in trade. And so the question is, you know, where does value actually get created and where are the benefits felt? And so a long standing criticism of, for example, social media companies and search engines like Google or Facebook is that they have reached audiences all over the world, but that the benefits, the profits have mostly gone to, you know, either tax havens or their home country where their headquarters are. And that there has really not been tax being paid or paying into the public purse. And so I think questions about redistribution as unemployment will inevitably rise because of the pandemic and as public services have really been strained, anything from the healthcare sector to questions about how to innovate education with you know kids going to school from home or doing some hybrid form will also put the focus back on what kind of core services do we really want to take care of and how do we pay for them? And if the benefits are mostly for global companies with digital services elsewhere and the cost remains you know distributed across societies, then I think there will be more pressure to tax companies. And the question is, what will that do to their location, to their uh, reaching people combined with, for example, threats of banning or more restrictions? I think we will see more pressure on global digital services compared to where we came from. This gets us to the question on taxation, which I, I want to address, but not before touching on something you also mentioned, which is this issue of new vulnerabilities that the digital economy has created. These vulnerabilities, which are also being exploited for protectionist policies. You mentioned the issue of TikTok and the United States. In China, we also have strong examples of digital protectionism emerging, say China's great firewall. Um, some complain that the EU is going along this same path by pushing for digital sovereignty and a recent opinion piece in the Financial Times by a former U.S. trade negotiator said that Europe's push for a European cloud and push for digital sovereignty is an example of this techno-nationalism. Is the digital arena simply now an extension of the overarching global tensions we see between, for instance, the U.S. and China, but also between the U.S. and Europe? Alan? It certainly is not helped. I mean, it's certainly part of the same phenomenon with Donald Trump in the White House. I think there are some some differences, though. One is that the technology 
issue is very clearly bound up with national security in a way that the fights over goods are not. I know Trump has used national security as an excuse to block steel and aluminium imports and so on, but that's really obviously a, a pretext. Nobody really believes that. Whereas a lot of really quite serious people do believe that having China controlling or in, in heavily involved in the US tech sector really is a problem. Uh, it's very striking. I, I saw literally a diagram recently where someone pointed out the apps that are used in China versus the US for various functions. And in each case, they're really very bifurcated. You know, in search, China has Baidu and, and uh, the US has Google. And in payment systems, for example, China has uh, Alipay, whereas US has PayPal and Apple Pay, and so on and so forth. And um, in social media, China has WeChat and so forth. Now, China has been trying for a very long time to make sure that is the case and keep American companies out. Of course, I mean, in payment systems, for example, they've fought a very fierce action to, to keep out Visa and MasterCard for a long time. What's interesting is it's now coming back quite strongly the other way. And you saw that with the banning of TikTok or forcing TikTok to diversify. And of course, China is not going to take that lying down. And I see China is, whether they work or not, I don't know, but China is taking actions to stop TikTok exporting its algorithm and so forth. So in that very, very modern, you know, purely online part of the economy, there is quite a lot of bifurcation between the US and China. And I think, to be honest, that will kind of continue. I, I don't see even a change of administration in the US changing that very much. But then, of course, there's a whole other bit of services, which is often services that go alongside goods trade. And there, I think, because I don't think that the good supply chains will break up, I think it's going to be much harder to pull the US and China apart. And sort of the real test case of which is sort of somewhere in the middle on this is something like Huawei, where they actually make kit, but it's kit that supports the tech sector. And that's a real battle that's going on. I mean, that's an extraordinary battle between the US and China to impose their sort of different models of how 5G is run on the world economy and different countries are going back and forth on it. And Maritza, where does this leave Europe, though? Because I remember seeing a similar diagram that Alan, I think, is referring to, where you have a lot of big tech Chinese firms and a lot of big tech US firms. And then in Europe, there's only a few. There's only a sprinkling. And it seems, if I look at the European Commission's agenda, it's almost like, well, we want to be digitally sovereign because we want to also have big companies like the Chinese and the US does. Yeah, I think the reference of the word sovereignty is extremely delicate, also because actually China had mentioned it before to justify their top-down, control-centered approach to governing technology. I think Europe has to make up its mind because the General Data Protection Regulation, which is much celebrated as one of the big regulatory steps that Europe has taken, actually comes at this question of how to deal with the conditions under which consumers can be reached by companies from all over the world in a more open way, in the sense that it says these are the criteria. And as long as companies adhere to these criteria, whether they be from Europe, from China, from the US or elsewhere, you're more than welcome. And I think that that is actually a much more open approach than emphasizing sovereignty, especially as the question of sovereignty is not crystal clear. Take, for example, national security concerns, which have been at the center of a lot of steps taken by governments. So we've seen the U.S. pressuring restrictions on Huawei 5G technologies, but also India banning a whole bunch of Chinese-made apps, Japan following suit, uh, Australia, New Zealand. So the notion that national security is invoked to restrict access to the markets is becoming more and more frequently used. And this is precisely the point where 
European member states are sovereign, to use the word again, and where you have a big friction between a promise of a digital single market or a single market in any case, but also digital one, and these powers on the part of member states to decide where they believe national security concerns come into play and the fragmentation as a result vis-a-vis Huawei, for example, in the 5G case, but also vis-a-vis other companies like perhaps TikTok now, you know, how does the EU explain that on the one hand, it has had ambitious data protection rules that have impacted uh, companies all over the world. But on the other hand, the US sees national security concerns while Europeans don't. And how do they navigate that space? So I feel like the sovereignty argument is delicate for Europeans. And if it were up to me, I would try to go for an approach that spells out the enabling conditions that companies have to meet in order to reach European customers and to also send the signal that that's the approach that Europe wishes to take. Strict, but a level playing field and Uh, There's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that a good result, but I would prefer that over uh, referencing sovereignty without being very clear of of what that would look like and without running the risk of playing into the hands of China. Segwaying to you, Alan, another country that likes to use the term sovereignty these days is the United Kingdom. How is this debate developing in the UK? Does it see it play a separate role to the EU and the US or... Uh, Because there's been some news recently about the UK struggling as well to define a policy or how it deals with digital champions. Yes, well, the UK, in a sense, has this, uh, not just the EU, but the US, but also China to cope with. So it's now quite a small country in relative terms, trying to navigate those three. And you could see with the Huawei example, very clearly how the US yanked the UK's chain and the UK snapped to attention really quite quickly and did a huge U-turn from being very welcoming to Huawei on the grounds that the UK really needed a, a fast rollout and a very efficient 5G network if it wanted to be a great digital leader to suddenly accepting that there were actually enormous national security implications here, actually adopting one of the more stringent approaches to to allowing Huawei into the 5G network. So you can see there and you will see it again once the UK exits the, the single market and exits the EU's data protection regime how the UK is going to have to do a very difficult balancing act between implementing something close to GDPR enough that it's able to carry on transferring data to and from the EU, but also acceding to US pressure or dealing with US pressure to have much freer flows of data, which is one of the US's large sort of commercial trade concerns. The fact that a country like the UK is not really aligned perfectly with any of those big powers, puts it in a difficult situation. There was this issue just recently of Arm, the UK chip manufacturer, right, which is one of the most important tech companies. Most Brits, let alone um, anyone else in the world, has never not heard of. I think one of my colleagues reported the other day there were 20 chips for, for everyone on earth. Now, the, the fact this might be taken over by a US company, normally you wouldn't be that bothered about that, except, of course, that once it becomes a US tech company, it's subject to uh, all those national security implications. It's subject to the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS. And so, you know, it then becomes, if you like, a, I don't know if it's a, a private, probably more like a, a major or a colonel, but nonetheless recruited into the US tech crusade, US tech army. So although you might think, although, you know, the promise of the internet was that we were going to have a very fluid, very open international kind of system, in reality, if you are a country the size of the UK, you are going to get squeezed and pulled between between different giants. 
What it was is thinking back in the 1990s, the internet was set up somewhat like a very liberal, uh, libertarian space where anyone can do what they wanted. Phrased differently, it was a bit like the Wild West, and those that were smart were able to thrive. There weren't any real rules. There wasn't really state intervention. There wasn't really a government that regulated how that space operated. But increasingly, we see the role of the state to be tremendously important in the digital space. If you want to use that analogy, there's all these different sheriffs. There's the Chinese sheriff, the US sheriff, the UK, but also very much the EU, and they all have different rules. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about what future lies ahead for the digital economy. At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, the Bertelsmann Stiftung, is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm here with Marietje Schaken. Marietje is president of the Cyber Peace Institute, international policy director at the Cyber Policy Center at Stanford University, and she's a former member of the European Parliament. Secondly, I'm joined by Alan Beatty. Alan is senior trade writer for the daily newsletter Trade Secrets for the Financial Times, and he's an associate fellow at Chatham House. I want to get to this question about who sets the rules of the road for the digital economy. We see competing blocks at the moment, and are we able to set international rules, or are we in a situation where we just have to accept that we have these big tech monopolies that dictate for consumers globally how the applications are run and what norms and standards they operate by. I guess this is a way of asking you, Marietje, because I know that you've done a lot of work on this and still do, is how should we look at this question of regulation for the digital economy? So I think if you ask the question, who sets the rules for the digital economy, currently it's the companies themselves. Because the de facto standards are set first by the way technology is built, by the way business models are operated. And increasingly, uh, some big tech companies are very powerful and cover a huge scope when it comes to both the services that they offer and the, the areas where they operate globally. So I would say big tech companies are an actor in governance and in regulation that should not be overlooked. And in some cases, their global norm setting impact will be bigger than that of governments. But I agree with what you said, that governments are very powerful. The role of the state can be very strong, but it does have to act. And so secondly, perhaps I would say that the first mover is very powerful. Uh, The actor that is able to leverage a certain size of its economy, of its customer base, 
of perhaps its political weight from time to time. But by moving first in a space where there had not been regulation initially or where there had only been corporate standards, then I think the first mover makes a big impact. And I think the GDPR here is a very good example where because the EU adopted a standard for data protection for companies like Microsoft, it was easier to have one standard than multiple standards. And so they just opted for the the so-called highest or strictest set of rules so that they would always be in the clear globally. And so here you can really see the ripple effect. And we've seen the same by other states essentially copying the GDPR. Uh, You can see the impact of leveraging the scale and being the first mover. Now, if that trend continues for a while, there's clearly going to be new kinds of fragmentation going on. And so what I think is very, very urgent is that like-minded nations, to begin with democracies, work together much more closely to develop democratic standards for governing technology. One, because it creates a level playing field between democratic nations based on values that they share, but two, because it actually will be necessary to balance the power of some big tech companies. I don't know if you uh, happen to see, but today there was a reference to the economic value of American tech companies exceeding that of the European unions. So it's an extremely powerful sector, which really requires balancing of its power. And that's an integral part of democracy. So I think democratic nations have to really step up their game, look to each other globally. So that means for Europe to include working not only with the US to the extent possible, but also India, Japan, Australia, really going global to make sure that there's this critical mass, not only now, but going forward, which will obviously create the best counterweight to state-driven, control-centric top-down governance models, which facilitate and and enhance the authoritarian states that deploy them. Is that the alternative that we should be mostly worried about, that these technologies are used and leveraged by authoritarian states, say, for instance, what we see in uh, China these days? Or is that the concern because that's where artificial intelligence is going to create multiplier effects for governments to impose their will on populations? Well, I think free society should always think about how to protect those freedoms and enhance them where possible. And and the whole digital world is a new domain where besides the possibilities and the exciting innovations, those freedoms are really at stake. And it comes at a time where there's a strange cocktail of events coming together. One, a laissez-faire approach by democratic nations who for a long time bought into the narrative coming from Silicon Valley that the technologies themselves would have a liberating or democratizing effect. Now, we now know that that promise never materialized. Uh, perhaps it was naive to believe so anyway, but it led to a hands-off approach by democratic countries who together, uh, European nations, the U.S., have been responsible for developing the international rules-based order. And they somehow came to a halt in extending those rules when it came to the digital world. And meanwhile, China is the best example, but there's other countries involved in this kind of top-down instrumentalizing of technology to enhance and retain their power and their interests. And they are not staying within the limits of their country, for example, in the case of China. But China is very actively engaged in digital diplomacy in other parts of the world, trying to create a critical mass in international organizations behind a a different perspective that they have on, you know, what should be acceptable and should not be acceptable, 
how to govern these technologies, how to instrumentalize them. And so indeed, I think for democracy uh, in the context of digitization, threats come from an authoritarian model and from the privatization, which also does not enhance the rule of law and democratic principles. So I would say it's almost like a sandwich between which democratic nations are, are squeezed, even though Sometimes they believe that there is a benefit in letting companies run the show, but I would say that's not the case. It doesn't help. And what do you think, Alad? I mean, you've written both about the EU's Brussels effect, sort of its regulatory superpower, as well as that in terms of geopolitics, it might not necessarily be the end all. In other words, the EU's regulatory superpower might not be enough to actually really determine the rules of the road when it comes to the future of the digital economy. Yes, I think that's very true. And I think there's quite a lot of complacency in Brussels um, that we know all about writing the rules. You know, we wrote the rules for chemicals, we wrote the rules for cars, um, and now we can write the rules for um, data protection through GDPR and for AI, ethics, and so forth. Um, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that unlike chemicals and cars, the Europe doesn't have a huge tech sector. Right? It's, it's when Europe was writing the chemicals rules, it had BASF and ICI and so forth. Um, and when it was writing the rules for uh, cars, of course, you know, it has world-class car companies, Volkswagen and so on. It doesn't have a big tech sector. You can't really be digitally sovereign if you don't have a big sector to be sovereign with. You're still going to be dependent on big foreign companies unless you believe you can suddenly magic them into place. I'm not a GDPR expert, but I am told there is a, a widespread critique that GDPR actually entrenched the power of some of the big platforms like Google because they are good at complying with it and they were active in, in uh, lobbying and shaping it. The other problem the EU has is that it's got its own issues with things like data flow because of concerns about privacy, which there would appear to be a belief that there is a contradiction between having tough data protection rules, tough privacy rules on the one hand, and encouraging free data flow on the other. From you know a relatively layperson's perspective, I would say that doesn't appear to be the case because Japan, for example, has pretty tough data protection, such that the EU, in fact, recognises its data protection as being um, being roughly equivalent as being adequate. And nonetheless, it's very keen on on data flow. But when these conversations start up, for example, in the World Trade Organization, the fact that the EU just can't participate at a very deep level because it says we're not going to discuss data flow in a very meaningful way. I'm not sure this is widely known, but even before Trump came to office, uh, the Trade and Services Agreement, which was one of the, it's a plurilateral agreement, and it was one of the attempts to start rulemaking going again in the WTO after the collapse of the previous multilateral trade round, that pretty much stalled, and it pretty much stalled because the EU refused to discuss data flow. And the conversations at the moment, I mean, they call themselves e-commerce, they're actually much wider. Um, but again, as I understand it, those are in kind of trouble because the EU finds itself hamstrung by its own domestic beliefs. So that, that role, rather, the EU has very helpfully played in the past because, you know, the EU is instinctively quite regulating and quite a rule-bound sort of society. It can't really play here. It doesn't have the domestic sector to project and it's somewhat flawed by its own unhelpful beliefs in that area. So I don't think that the Brussels effect phenomenon that has absolutely you know, controlled a lot of world goods production can really replicate itself in the digital sphere. So from the EU's perspective, it needs to work with others. And Marike has been making that case as well with like-minded countries, perhaps also with Silicon Valley itself. But that then raises this issue, how do the EU and the United States see eye to eye on that question of digital taxation? 
We've touched upon it at the beginning of this discussion that the digital economy is creating distribution effects that European governments that also been forced to dip deep into their pockets to support domestic companies in the context of the pandemic are now looking for areas to tax. And that digital services seems to be a straightforward one, which puts up all these red flags in Washington. Marikio or Alan, I don't know who of you wants to jump in on this question, but it seems to me that digital taxation might be the major obstacle to transatlantic cooperation on digital norm setting. Let me start by also memorizing a little bit of a traumatic uh, time when I was still in the European Parliament. And I was reminded of that when I just heard Alan speaking about data flows, uh, which is indeed that in the European Parliament, where every trade vote was tense and, you know, slim majorities, and it was always a lot of lobbying and trying to calculate where the majority might fall ahead of the vote, but not so much with a digital trade strategy that we adopted in the European Parliament with a large majority. But nevertheless, it got stalled in the European Commission because of some internal disagreements. The reason why I wanted to bring that up is transatlantic cooperation presupposes that there's a clear position on the part of the EU on what it wants on a number of subjects. And I think tax might actually be an exception. And a lot of other work is being done on, for example, artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there should be room for cooperation. I also imagine that in the U.S., sooner or later, the question of taxing big companies, uh, including tech, will come up because the inequality there, especially exacerbated by the pandemic, is so extreme. And a part of the inequality and the harms or the hurt uh, in the socioeconomic sense of this pandemic can be attributed to the notion of platform economies where workers have no rights, no contracts, and are essentially unemployed the day that they can't work anymore. They're really day laborers, for example, Uber drivers or other delivery people. I think it's a real life test of economic systems that we're seeing, where there's a lot to be said for the European system that has, you know, social security systems and buffers in place, even if questions about their sustainability uh, are also uh, very, very urgent, versus the US, where giving so much power to the private sector has been celebrated for a long time, but questions about whether that's sustainable are inevitable as well. So I'm hoping, and much will depend on the election outcome in November, but I'm hoping that there will be some possibility to a meeting of minds based on the threats that we both face in a changing world, but also based on shared values. And in that sense, I think COVID strangely may actually lead to some more shared perspectives as well. Alan, what do you think? I mean, just recalling that France's plan for introducing the digital services tax was met with the U.S. threat of counter sanctions on French luxury products. Do you see a way out of this? So what's interesting is this. If you look at the how that particular response evolved, the U.S. Treasury, which is always the most sort of internationally minded of the departments, was quite happy to have these conversations in the OECD where they were taking place. It was then not just overruled, but as I understand it, completely blindsided by the US trade representative who just saw US company being taxed, not fair, you know, usual unilateral threat of retaliation. Now, I think it is quite possible that one thing that will solve this is a Biden administration. And I think that's true in, in not all, but in several areas of trade, because one, the Biden administration is instinctively more 
cooperative. I'm not saying it's, you know, unabashedly multilateralist. We're not going to go back to the days of Bill Clinton. But Biden, people who know him say he is essentially a foreign policy guy and he instinctively looks for alliances and strategic alliances. So you can well imagine him having a big rapprochement with Europe on trade issues, trying to encircle China, you know, on issues like tech and possibly coming to some accommodation on digital services tax because the US and particularly the Democrats do not like the fact that their companies avoid tax either, right, and shift all their profits overseas. So they're not actually averse, the more, you know, moderate of them, to having good international regimes. They'd like money brought back to the US and taxed there. So I think it is quite possible if you move on from the somewhat chaotic and self-contradictory and often unilateralist mode of the Trump administration to something that is at least more hard-nosed and coordinated like Biden, you might start to see some progress there. And what if we don't get Biden? Uh, If you don't get Biden, I think we're going to have more of the same, unfortunately. I think, you know, a lot of the very unilateral, often quite quixotic, often quite arbitrary decisions on things like tech and China, I think we're in for another four years of that. Um, you know, untroubled by a presidential election coming. So I, I see very little prospect of cooperation on, on things like tech taxes in that case. Well, perhaps an alternative, Maritia, what I know that you've been sort of exploring as well is to engage the dialogue with big tech. So rather than rely on government to government, rely on the public and private sectors cooperating. Is there anything in that or am I hopelessly optimistic? Well, I actually, I'm afraid that the opportunity for either self-regulation where tech companies took their own responsibility is kind of behind us because there's been so much trust lost uh, in terms of, you know, what was promised and what was delivered, but also in terms of the, the growing power that goes unchecked, the growing amount of harms that result from some of those new business models. So Obviously, a lot of this discussion has been focusing on the visible companies, you know, the Facebooks of this world, the Amazons of this world, the Googles of this world. But there's also a whole host of companies like data brokers, like commercial intelligence companies, commercial hacking companies, where the harms are arguably worse and the accountability, even in the marketplace, uh, are, are much less because people don't really know their names and they do business to business. And in some sectors, like in, in commercial hacking services, having a reputation to be uh, ruthless is actually an advantage. So I believe that it is no longer uh, the right avenue to say we're going to do public-private cooperation. I have called on companies to take their own responsibility, and I think it's really important. I think they will also pay the price for not doing so. But essentially, uh, I believe that it's time for democratic, rule of law-based rules of the road, not so much as restrictions, which is often how it's portrayed, also as enabling factors, but as enablers of safety, fundamental rights protection, fairness in the economy, you know, and preventing the worst possible outcomes. And in that sense... Uh, I'm excited that actually Joe Biden has talked about a coalition of democratic countries to deal with some of these challenges. And I I think that it has a lot of general relevance, but particularly when it comes to governing technology, including when it comes to digital trade, but certainly also in light of, you know, the need to have more robust human rights protections and security corporations. 
It's fascinating. There's, of course, this development taking place in the context of the OECD. It's a discussion which hasn't been moving all that far, although recent reporting suggests that the initiative isn't entirely without oxygen. But I assume you're thinking about something bigger and perhaps more political. Well, the OECD has focused a lot on taxation, and we just touched upon how challenging that is with the U.S. slamming the door and walking away. But I would say, yes, it should be really a ongoing coalition alliance that thinks about how technology should be governed. Because once barriers are erased between democratic countries, it can enable trade you know, under the right conditions. It can strengthen the voice and the negotiating position vis-a-vis certain companies. I mean, we could just read in today's paper, for example, in the FT actually, um, kudos to, uh, to Alan, um, the, the problem of scarcity of rare earth materials. And here too, you need to really join forces to negotiate well with countries that may be difficult to negotiate with. The same can be said for companies that may not be too inclined to listen to, for example, the Dutch government, as much as they like to think that they're governing a big country, but really more you know, on the European level or rather on the, uh, let's think about it as a, as a D20 uh, coalition, for example. So... Um, In any case, I think there's a lot of scope for new coalitions. There's also a need for new coalitions. If you look at what has been destroyed in the transatlantic relation over the past four years, I think that should not be underestimated. So I'm looking forward to seeing what's possible after the elections. And I personally would worry about more of the same because I think the um, nationalist protectionist tendencies have a lot of downsides that we need to be mindful of and that other kinds of erosions of cooperation in the space of democracy and human rights have a human price that is, it's really hard to even specify, you know, its cost for the longer term. Alan, what do you make of this alliance of digital democracies? And where does that leave Asian economies that perhaps are much more in China's regulatory sphere of influence? Whenever people talk about leagues of democracies and so on, I think it's a bit unfortunate because you know, uh, democracy is on a spectrum and I'm not convinced that the, the EU with um, events in Hungary and Poland and so on is, is best place to start talking about democracies. Um, I, I certainly think it is possible that there are a lot of countries, I mean, even if you look at Asian countries who are very suspicious of Huawei, for example, and whereas I don't think that people are going to join some massive league, particularly one wrapped in an American flag, which is going to take on China on everything. I certainly think issue by issue, such as 5G, it is possible to construct, you know, it is possible to construct alliances and groups of interest, particularly if there is an alternative. You know, if you present country with an alternative, say, you don't have to use Huawei, you know, Ericsson, Nokia are now cheaper, or Cisco, or whoever the US producer ought to be, um, is cheaper, then I think that is quite possible. But I think that turning this into a new Cold War is actually going to put countries off and it will lead to the emergence of a, a, a large and rather uncomfortable non-aligned movement. Yes. And one of the concerns, of course, at the geopolitical level is our structures start to gravitate towards a G2, where everything becomes part of the US-China standoff, which um, I'm not sure European policymakers will be all that enthusiastic about. But that's a whole different discussion. Marietje, a year from now, where are we going to be in this conversation about how we regulate the digital economy, you think? 
I would predict that there will be a lot of action coming out of the United States from the executive level, but also not to underestimate the attorneys general of different states that are doing an ongoing investigation of antitrust violations of Google, a number of states that have adopted bans on facial recognition technologies. So I would say almost contrary to what has been the case for a long time, there's more happening in the US than meets the eye. And so I would look there and especially uh, with an eye on November to see how things could change. Great. And we'll be sure to keep an eye on that as well. Thank you to both of you for this conversation. We covered a lot of ground. We started talking about the impact of the pandemic on the digital economy and ended up talking about the November elections in the United States and the potential for a alliance of like-minded digital democracies. It goes to show that the digital economy covers a huge, complex array of issues, which will continue to, uh, to keep us very busy indeed. Alan Beatty and Marietje Schake, thank you very much for, uh, for joining me for this conversation. And I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks very much. AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade series and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.